Good morning, Woodland Hills. It's good to see all of you. And though I can't see the folks that are tuning in, it's good to know that you're tuning in and that you're part of this. Sounds like we got a lot of exciting things happening this summer. A lot of partying going on. I hope you can uh, make that. These baptism and the, uh, the Not Dead Yet band. We're going to be rocking and rolling. Come and check that out. Uh-huh. Uh, it's going to be going to be a lot of fun. I'm Greg. I've been away for a couple weeks. I missed you. I hope you missed me. Uh, but um, I, I had a nice vacation, and uh, it was wonderful. Appreciate, uh, so so deeply appreciate Dan and, and Cedric uh, filling in the last two weeks. Weren't, weren't they incredible? Honestly. I, 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 Cedric, he had planned on speaking on civic engagement about two months ago. We had talked about that. And it's just his good luck, or maybe his providence, or maybe who knows what, but... Uh, he happens to give that message two days after they reverse Roe versus Wade. The guy's got chutzpah. I mean, he just gets up there and handles it so calmly. It was just great. And in a, in a time when um, it seems like everybody in the culture is, is getting increasingly offendable. It's like, you know, who can all offend who? And everyone's so easily offendable. What more timely message than the one that Dan gave on how not to be offendable? I mean, that's just, that, that, was, just, that was just great. Something we all need uh, to, to uh, hear. If you didn't hear those messages, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to them. Um, we're in this series on love and judgment, and it won't be apparent that we're in this series on love and judgment for about the first half of this sermon or so, but I assure you that it will eventually be about love and judgment. But I want to start a little bit differently here. I, I want to read a part of a poem. It, it's, it's one of my favorite poems, and I'm not much into poetry. But uh, this one just grabbed me as a, as, oh, back when I was in college. And uh, it's, I, I always, it's, it's one of these poems that kind of haunt you. Uh, every once in a while it comes back. And right now it feels so relevant. It, it, it's, it, it's a poem by William uh, Yeats, uh, and it's called The Second Coming. And listen to this. He says, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. It goes on from there. It's the turning and turning of the widening gyre. The gyre is just a spiral. It refers to a spiral. And uh, the falcon and the falconer is, the, 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 falcon, the falconer trains the falcon. And they initially have a leash where they have the, 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 the falcon on this uh, a gyre. He goes on a spiral. And then in time, the falconer loses the leash. And it's just the command that keeps the uh, falcon going in this uh, spiral. But what's happening here is that the gyre is getting wider and wider to the point where now the falcon can't hear the falconer. And so now the, the falcon has no center, nothing to hold it there. The center cannot hold. And what, will, what Yates is, is, is expressing here is how he felt. He wrote this in 1919, right after World War I. And, and it, what he's saying is that uh, it feels like the world's coming undone. Like We've lost our center. Whatever it was that used to hold people together hold societies together, hold the world together. It seems like we're losing that. The center cannot hold. Anarchy is being loosed upon this world. Everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. It's a, I don't know, maybe this is me, but does that sound kind of relevant right now? <laughs> I, does anyone else have the sense that the world's gone crazy? Uh, it has just been feeling like that. Um, 
So many things going on, so many things that can make you anxious. That's why people's kind of nervous energy is rising. And I read this one article where there's a sense of, of, of dread and, and gloom that is, is descending on folks, especially the younger folks. Not very optimistic about the future. We've got this polarization in America here, speaking specifically of America. It's happening in other parts of the world as well, this polarization intensifying. And you wonder, is democracy even going to survive? It's crazy. And then we've got this almost daily, in fact, it is daily, mass shootings going on, school shootings going on, it's insanity, and judges are being threatened, and inflation is running out of control right now. We continue to have racial unrest. The Arctic snow is melting. Global warming is escalating. Species are dying. We still got the coronavirus going on. And, of course, we've got Putin and the threat of nuclear war. What else is there to worry about? Have a great day. Hallelujah. No, it's insane that this, this is, the intensity of this is just, it's just pretty crazy. Chaos, it feels like chaos is being unleashed in this world. The center cannot hold. We're coming undone. People feel this anxiety and dread. It's like, you know, the, the, the sun holds the planets in orbit. You know, the gravitational pull of the sun. Things are in place because there's a sun. But what if that sun was to lose its gravitational pull, lost its power? Well, we just start... Planets would start floating out into outer space. And that's what feels like kind of what's happening here. The center is not holding. Everything is just floating. It's chaos all over the place. And see, what you find in, in nature, this is true of solar systems. It's true of atoms. You find it in nature. You find it in society. It's true of humanity as a whole. It's true of us individually. And that is that we need a strong center. We need to be anchored in something, centered in something. And to the degree that we're not centered in something, properly related to a center, well, chaos ensues. Now, I'll share with you why I'm something of an expert on it when it comes to centers. I'll explain how I got this knowledge. About 16 years into our marriage, Shelly and I realized that we were kind of in different universes and our cores weren't touching. I don't know if anyone else here has ever had any kind of marriage problems. Probably not. It's probably just me. But, but, but uh, yeah, we had to get some counseling, and, and we just lived in different worlds. Uh, in some ways, we were aliens to each other. And as long as we had kids, you know, and, 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 and ministry and all sorts of things to keep us busy, and we, were, we got aligned together well, well, we could ignore these big differences. But as the kids got a little bit older and life settles down, you begin to look at yourself as a couple, and it's like, whoa, we really aren't connecting here. And, and the challenge on my end was this. Shelly just loves to make uh, living spaces come alive. She loves to make things beautiful. She loves to decorate and, 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 uh, and just put things in order. She loves to do that. There is nothing on this planet that interests me less than that. <laughs> I mean, decorating, I, 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 I'm way better than I, I, I used to be because I've been married to Shelly for 43 years, and you can't wear off on each other, uh, for better or for worse. But I, 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 for, um, I, I, I'm better than I used to be. I used to be totally oblivious to my environment. What, what, what determined my mood was nothing out here. It's what's going on in between my head. If ideas are congruent, I'm happy. If they're not congruent, I'm not happy. And it doesn't matter whether my room is messy or, 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 or neat. or doesn't. So I don't notice that stuff. One time she went out and bought a chandelier. And, and, and it, but it was hanging too low. And, and, and so she put this new chandelier in this, in this living room that we had, in this new house we moved into. And I bumped my head against that chandelier three times before I noticed we had a chandelier. 
It took three. I, I would bump it like, oh. And, and I finally said, who lowered the chandelier? Well, there wasn't even a chandelier there before. This is a whole new thing. And Shelly was waiting to see when I would find out, uh, marveling at my absolute. So we've got a problem here. Uh, and, and I need to find a way to get into her world. But how do you make yourself interested in something that just doesn't interest you? Well, in the process of going through counseling, an idea came to me. And the idea was this. I, I, I love books. I love to read philosophy and theology and, and, and all of that. And that's something that Shelley is not very into. And that's, therein lies the problem. But uh, I, I like philosophy and, and theology. And I know there was a branch of philosophy called the philosophy of aesthetic, aesthetics. Uh, the philosophy of beauty. I never read much on it because I don't care about that stuff. But now that I need to get into my wonderful wife's world and my marriage is on the line, it's worth a shot. So I start reading on the philosophy of aesthetics. Aesthetics. And um, it, it deals with questions like what is beauty? Uh, what makes a living space a living space? What makes a, a place welcoming? And there's all these kind of principles. And, 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 and I got into reading about architecture. What makes a building, you know, a welcoming building and not welcoming or whatever. And um, learned a lot of stuff. One of the things I learned is that every, a living space, living spaces always replicate nature in that they have a strong center. That they have a strong center, a center of the room. And everything else in the room is supposed to complement that center. Uh, sometimes they call the, the, the center of the room the source center. And the other things in the room are complementary centers. They contribute something unique, but, but it should complement the center in the room, not compete with it. Uh, I also learned that living things, living spaces, are not perfectly symmetrical. Uh, you need uh, a balance of symmetry and asymmetry of, of linear and nonlinear forms of order. Uh, you know, you need, to, you need order, but you also need a little bit of chaos, uh, not chaos necessarily, but spontaneity. Things are just a little out of place. So I'm learning all this stuff. And one day, my wife invites me to go to the Parade of Homes. You guys know what that is? Parade of Homes? Um, <laughs> all the women are going, well, duh. Well, I, 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 Shelly used to love to go to these. And once in a while, she dragged me along. And, and to me, it wasn't a Parade of Homes. It was a Parade of Boring Torture. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> this is what the kind of things you do in a marriage. And so I go along to keep peace. Well, this one time, she asked me uh, to go with her because... Uh, she and a friend were going to check out some houses, and there's something she wanted to show me, and it's an idea she had for our house or whatever. And, and normally, I mean, a year earlier, I would have tried my hardest to get out of this. I would have, I really, I would have just come up with something. But this time I thought, you know, it's a chance to maybe show off a little bit of my new philosophy of aesthetics chops. <laughs> so I, I say, sure, we go out to this Prater Homes. And the first two houses, uh, I didn't say anything because there wasn't much to say, and, and I, I wanted to make my entrance kind of grand, so I was waiting for the right moment. So we go to this third room, this third house, and we walk into this living room, and I immediately go, this room does not work. <coughs> this room does not work at all. And Shelly and her friend were like, he said something. He spoke. He's got an opinion. And they're just staring like deers in a headlight. And, and I, I, so I said, it doesn't work. It's, I don't know where it's supposed to look. Here, here we've got this wonderful fireplace over here, magnificent fireplace, and you'd think that would be the natural center of the room. But then they put a TV over here, and all the couches are facing the TV. So you got incongruity here. There's this conflict here. I don't know where my eyes are supposed to settle. I feel nervous just standing in this room for crying out loud. <laughs> and it's pitch 
centers here. I mean, everything's competing with everything. There's nothing complementary here because there's no strong center. And the, the, the pictures are too symmetrical, all the same, same, same lined right in a row, equally distance apart from each other. And they're too clustered. I feel claustrophobic or constipated. Or maybe I'm a claustrophobic constipated. I don't know. But hey, get me out of this room right now. It's like, you got to mix it up a little bit. At least spread these paintings out a little bit. I put one above the other. Give it a little bit of dissonance because living spaces have to have a little bit of asymmetry. At this point, I think my wife thought, an alien has, has, has invaded my husband's brain. But she liked this alien. But then at the same time, I, she got to understand that an alien hadn't taken my brain. Finally, your alien husband found a way of getting into her brain. And it was through, through uh, studying aesthetics. Uh, and I'll tell you. No, I'm not going to tell you. It's <laughs> not your business. But I'm just saying. Husbands, get into your wife's head. <laughs> There are fringe benefits. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, so I know a little bit about centers um, and, and, and how important they are to our life. Um, so here's the thing. Here's a passage I've been, it's become increasingly uh, valuable to me over the last couple of years. It's Philippians 4.7, where, where uh, Paul says, In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is our center, folks. The peace of God. Man, we need to hear this now. This is the peace of God. It's God's peace. It's a peace that comes from God and that characterizes God. It's not like the kind of peace that the world can give, which is simply the absence of conflict. No, the peace of God is shalom. And shalom is, is, it refers to harmony, it refers to peace, uh, integrated is wholeness. So the, the wholeness of God, the harmony of God, the integration of God, the peace of God, uh, which surpasses all understanding, he says. And it surpasses all understanding because this is the kind of peace, because it comes from God, it's the kind of peace that you can have when your natural understanding says, oh, it's time to freak out. So when everyone else around you, leaning on their natural understanding, is freaking out, believers in Christ Jesus have access to this peace that passes all understanding. It's there when times are good, but it's also there when times are bad. This is a peace that's pervasive at the core of our being. Regardless of what going, is going on around us, however nuts it is, we can have this peace. But really, what really interested me is that he says that this peace, the shalom of God, will guard your hearts Guard your hearts. Apparently our hearts need guarding. From what? Well, from all of the craziness that's going on around us. Uh, the toxicity, uh, the, the anger, uh, the anxiety, the fears, the shouting, the conflict. It's, we're surrounded by it, and it's, it's, it's intensifying. And frankly, I, I'm not confident it's going to get better before it gets worse. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And um, it's like all of that stuff, that toxicity is clawing at our hearts, trying to get in. And that's not just mere poetry here, folks, because there really are principalities and powers out there that, 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 that fuel hatred and fear, anxiety, conflict, violence. They're behind all of that, and they're trying to get into our hearts. And see, to the degree that we give in to fear, give in to any kind of hatred, give in to harboring resentment towards anything, we become vulnerable to them. 
and our hearts get invaded with that pollution, and now we just contribute to that pollution, that toxicity. But we, our call is, and our privilege is, that we can have access to a peace that can guard us against all of that, to be anchored solidly into the shalom of God, having this as the center of our life, the wellspring of our well-being, the ultimate source of our joy. And see, it's something that the world cannot touch, the world cannot give it, and the world cannot take it. That's why Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. Not like the world gives. No, I, I, my peace I give unto you, that my joy may be fulfilled. God gets joy when we're finding peace in him, when we're sharing in his peace. God, the other oriented love of God is that he loves to give himself away. And so he wants to give his shalom away to us. In the process of giving his shalom to us, he gives us his joy. And he gives us his love. He gives us his peace. And he, he delights in us being anchored in that. But that's the one thing that can guard our hearts and keep us from being caught up into the mayhem that is around us. And folks, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is like our, our, our number one job assignment. We're supposed to contrast with the world in some fundamental ways. And, and, and so the hotter it gets, both globally and in society, and the more acrimonious it gets, the more we need to contrast with all that by putting on display what it looks like to have a different kind of king and live in a different kind of kingdom. Uh, in Colossians 3, 15, Paul says, that the love of Christ, or, or the peace of Christ, will, will rule your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule your heart. <laughs> you know, Jesus is our Lord. He's supposed to rule over us. And sometimes people get this idea of lordship as a, he's like a tyrant saying, here's what you must do. But see, to make Jesus Christ Lord is to make peace Lord. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. Let it have dominion in your heart. And let it have authority over all the fear and anxiety and hatred and conflict that the world tries to install in there. Ah, the peace of God that passes understanding guards our heart and is to rule our heart. Things may get worse before they get better, but praise God, um, we have a peace that passes understanding because it's anchored in something that doesn't change. Everything around us is changing, but the, uh, God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the kingdom of God will reign forever and ever and ever, praise God. Uh, the peace we have is the peace of knowing that however bad it gets, however terrible it gets, and it may get really, really, really awful, we have to prepare our hearts for this. Don't be taken by surprise. It may get better tomorrow. Who knows? Maybe the globe will start cooling off. But right now, the way it looks is that uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. So prepare your hearts for this uh, and, 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 and make sure you're grounded in the eternal God, your creator. Make sure you're grounded in the shalom of God. Make sure that peace is ruling your heart so that you're not caught up into all the mayhem that's going on around us. Okay, I, I, I share all that because now I'm going to turn to the Genesis passage and see, uh, this, I promised three weeks ago, last time I preached to you, that I, I this, Genesis 3 is just so inspired. It's got so much insight and so much going on. And I wanted to spend a couple more weeks just kind of mining it and, and, and bringing out some, some truths here. It's a story about boundaries. It's a story about how human beings lost our center. And because of that, it's a story that can give us clues as to how to go about regaining our center. So this is, this, this is the paradigmatic story. I, I want to say this as a, word, a preliminary word before I get to the passage. That the author of Genesis, or authors of Genesis 1 through 3, are very concerned with boundaries. Um, in fact, this is true of the Old Testament worldview in general. Uh, you read Leviticus, they're, they're very concerned about preserving boundaries because they had an understanding that what holds the world together are proper boundaries, things having their proper place. And so you, you see this laid out in Genesis, Genesis 1, where 
the author starts off by saying that if initially there's chaos, the world was without form and void, tohu wabohu, it's chaos. But out of this chaos, God creates this world. And he does it by creating boundaries and making distinctions. And so he separates the light from the darkness. And then he separates the waters above from the waters below. And then he separates the, the, the land from the seas. And then he fills out these spaces with, with things. But the point of the story is that without boundaries, things fall into chaos. The only difference between absolute chaos and creation is that things have a place. There's a proper order of things. Boundaries are respected. The story of the flood in Genesis 6 is the story of what happens when boundaries no longer hold. Chaos is unleashed upon the world. So let's read this story here. Um, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. We're going to see here the first human boundary violation. He said to the woman, did God say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, which, by the way, is all a lie. She's looking at this tree through the lens of the serpent's lie. But when she saw this, she took the fruit and ate of it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. This is the story of the first violation of a boundary by humans. It's also the, the paradigmatic violation. This is the violation that we all, this is a violation that we all have committed. Um, and it's what's ultimately fundamentally wrong with human beings and with, with this world right now. Uh, the author tells us that there's, there's two trees that were in the middle of the garden. And for an author who's concerned about location and boundaries in space, that is significant. Two trees in the middle of the garden. Why are they in the middle? And I take it to be that the author's communicating that life in Eden, life in paradise, life as God intended it, revolves around these two things, these two trees. First is the tree of life. And the tree of life is God's provision of life. We are to trust God for our life. Not just for, well, certainly trust God for our daily living uh, and, and our daily needs, but even more fundamental than that, trust God for what makes life worth living? Trust God to give our meaning to our life, purpose to our life, significance to our life, uh, security to our life, peace to our life. All that I, I refer to as the fullness of life. We all have a sense of how life was supposed to be experienced, this fullness of life, to be fully alive. Our call, and by God's design, we're to get our life from him. Now, other people contribute a lot of things to our life, and that's good and that's necessary, but at the core of our being, we should feel good about ourselves and feel good about life because we know who God is, and we know that God is he's revealed in Jesus Christ, and we know what we're worth before God, and, and the more eggs you can put in that basket, the better off you're going to be. Make that the most important thing. It has to be the center of, uh, of our life, the center of our identity, fullness of life. We're not to get it the way the world gets it or tries to get it, 
Because you can never you can never get full of life by 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 trying to do it on your own. Uh, that's what this story is about. He tries to do that and it fails. But see, in the world, you try to get, feel fully alive because of how smart you are or how much you make or how, on, on the, how high on the totem pole you are or because of how religious you are or how right you are. you got the right religion or you got the right politics. or you, It makes you feel good about yourself because, now fill in the blank. It's okay to feel good about yourself because of, of, of things that you've done and achieved, whatever, but it shouldn't be the core of who you are. Your identity should come from your creator, full stop. This is what Jesus is getting at. When he says in, in, in Matthew 6.33 that, that we're to strive first and foremost for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The word righteousness there is a covenantal term that, that, that means right relatedness. So make this the highest priority of your life to seek God and, and, and to be rightly related to God and to practice right relatedness according to God. What is the proper order of things? What are the proper boundaries of things? Seek that first. And to have, have a proper relationship with God means that God is center. He's at the center. Uh, you are the planet that revolves around God. You're not the, the, the center that, that God and everything else revolves around. Uh, and, 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 and so it's a, uh, it makes this the highest priority. And it's not something you can do once and then leave it aside. Oh, I can check that off the list. No, this is a lifestyle. We're going to be always striving first and foremost, highest priority, center of our life, is to seek the kingdom of God, the reign of God, and his right relatedness. Uh, it's just like with living spaces. God creates this world. The reason why you know, you, living spaces have strong centers is because you see this reflected throughout the whole cosmos, from solar systems to galaxies to atoms. So you can show up that diagram here. By God's design, God wants to be our source center. Do we have that diagram? A source center, and well, it's not that in front of a diagram anyways, and so I don't even Oh, there we go. So God is our source center. And, and he needs to be like the fireplace of the room. The, the, the attention should be, your eyes should be drawn to him first. And our job is to be the complementary centers. Uh, we're made in the image of God. We're to reflect God. Uh, we bring our own stuff. We're, we're, each of one of us is unique, and we have something very unique to contribute to the overall plan of God, to the beauty of creation, to society. We've got a unique thing. But that unique thing shouldn't compete with God. It should complement God. Uh, Every unique thing you contribute should be a, a different way of reflecting God's love and God's character and love's beauty. That's what we're created for. To dance with the triune God, to share in his love, to share in his joy, to reflect that, to pass it on, to spread it. We're meant to be, not to be source centers, but complementary centers. When we try to be our own source center, which is what Eve does, the lie, the lie of the serpent is you can be your own source center. There's something you can do, Eve, that can improve your lot in life. Uh, God's holding out on you. There's something that, 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 that God had that you can get for yourself by doing something, reaching out and grabbing off that tree. You can do it for yourself. Acquire it for yourself. Be all you can be. You can be wise like God. And see, the minute that humans buy that lie, we stop being human beings and we start being human doings. Because now we're defined by what we get, what we acquire, what we do, what we can achieve, all of that. All of that is different ways eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's true of us individually, it's true of us collectively. To the degree that we are genuinely anchored in our source center, we will be experiencing shalom, the shalom of God. And to the degree that we're not anchored in our source center, to the degree that we, rather we think that we are the center, to that degree we're going to be missing shalom. We'll be experiencing fragmentation, conflict, anxiety, fear, anger. All of that is a fragmentization of shalom. 
The story of Genesis, is, Genesis 3 is a story about how the shalom of God was, 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 was fractured. It was fractured because we stopped trusting God to be the source of our life. And then it was fractured because, here's the second tree, we didn't honor the prohibition. Life in Eden, life as God intends it, revolves around, depends completely on our trusting the provision and our honoring the prohibition. The prohibition being the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God is saying, don't ever think that you can be wise like me. Don't ever try to violate that no trespassing sign. Don't ever think you can take my place as judge. Don't ever, human beings, don't always respect the difference between you and God and don't ever try to stand in the place of God. And the place of God is in the center. And see, you now if, if you think about it, those two trees were there to protect that center. Keep God at the center. No trespassing. Do not cross this line. Be like me in how you love one another and how you care for the earth and the animal kingdoms, but don't try to be like me in how you think you can judge, on, uh, judge other people. Your job is to love them, not judge them. Amen. And so th th these two trees protect the boundary between us and God, between us as complementary centers and God as the source center, because shalom only happens when that order is kept in right balance, the way it's supposed to be. When Adam and Eve violate this, well, they, when they stop eating from the tree of life and they start eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they put themselves in the center. They think that they're wise like God. That's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They think they have the right and the capacity to judge others like God. And, and, and so part of what the story's telling us is that when, when God is no longer our center, we become our own center. We become self-centered. And is this not true? In this condition, in this fallen condition, we tend to see the world and experience the world as revolving around us. It's all about me. It's all about me. This is life in Adam. Uh, this is life in, in fallen humanity. In fact, you can see the self-centeredness right in the story of Adam and Eve itself. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's the first thing that happens? They look at themselves. Ah, I'm naked! Didn't notice that before. So they got to cover themselves up. And then when God shows up, they kind of cover themselves up again with blames, excuses. Oh, well, me, it was her. Well, me, it was a serpent. And it, 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 they're living out of the self-centeredness. This is, this is what Paul calls life in Adam. This is a fallen humanity. And in this fallen state, we don't naturally orbit God. Rather, we tend to think that God and everything else orbits us. We are the center. People ask questions like, you know, I don't know, if my God, belief in God, it, it, it doesn't work for me. When someone told me that. I, I, I used to believe in, in Jesus, but it just didn't work for me. I said, I said to him, well, who told you that was supposed to work for you? <laughs> I, I mean, he's the one who's Lord, not you. I, you got it wrong right from the get. But we think it's all about me. Me. And the reason we think it's all about me is because we're all hungry. And we're hungry because we're not getting all of our life, our fullness of life from God. Everybody wants to have their best life. Everyone wants to feel like they're fully alive. They want to feel significant and important and, and, and like they're, they're not alone. They want to feel secure. Everybody wants that. But if we're not getting it from God, well, then we try to get it from everything else. And the whole world becomes a potential food stage. Everything's potential food. Depending on what your strategy is, you know, to, to get people to like you, to think you're funny, to get, think you're religious, to get, think that you're wealthy, think that you're sexy, whatever, whatever jazzes you, 
Whatever floats your boat. I was going to say jazz is your boat, but that, that'd be like Janice. She always mixes up those metaphors. If, that, if that's what jazz is your boat, then go with it. No, if that's what toots your horn or whatever gets you going. But see, we, 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 we feed off it. And this is why we have all this conflict in the world, because our strategies for getting life conflict with one another. But I want us to see this, why living in a self-centered way is eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because see, as we look at the world through the lens of our hungry eyes, we're always judging. This is life in perpetual assessment, because we're trying to feed the soul. Will it benefit me or not? Does it help me? Does it harm me? Will it further my self-interest or will it not further my self-interest? Uh, is this gonna, something I approve of or disapprove of? Do I agree with it or not agree with it? What do I think about everything? And we're asking the question out of the center of hunger, out of our neediness. This is why we're not good judges. We can't do it like God because we always bend the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in our own favor. Our judgments are almost always self-serving. And so we live in this perpetual assessment mode, always evaluating. What's going to give me life, what's not? Well, further my interest. And so what's good is what's good for me and what's evil is what's evil for me. What helps me is good. What's bad is, uh, is evil. Even from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Our judgments are always self-serving. We're living in perpetual assessments. And a lot of those assessments we've shown are necessary. We, we, you have to make a lot of assessments about, am I safe here? Uh, do I trust uh, the salesperson? Uh, is this politician lying? Oh, that's a redundant question, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but you have to ask, you ask these questions. Do I agree with this or not? That's fine. And, and, and those are legitimate evaluations, and you know that they're legitimate because there's always an action point on it. There, there's a problem that you're solving. Okay, there's a step that you're going to take. There's a practical end to it. And it has a purpose. You're not feeding off this. You're just trying to answer the question. Should I buy this car or not? But see, life in Adam, we go beyond that. And um, we start to judge people negatively, and we do it. All behavior has a purpose. What's the purpose of this? Well, we're feeding off of it. We feed off of it. It gives us a little bit of what we're looking for. Next time you catch yourself gossiping about someone in your head, oh, I can't believe that she's wearing that. Whatever, you know, whatever thoughts there. And I hope you are catching yourself doing that because if you're not catching yourself doing that, it, 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 you're probably not practicing GAP, this, this discipline that we're all kind of taking on uh, in the series and after the series. Um, because if you're intentionally trying to agree with God about every person you meet having unsurpassable worth, you will bump into those gossip things in our brain. So catch yourself. And, and next time you catch yourself gossiping about someone in your brain, ask the question, why are you doing that? If there's an action step because you want to help them, you've got to solve this problem, whatever, well, that's legitimate. But if you're gossiping, the chances are that that's not what's going on. The only, per, the only thing you're doing, why are you having this conversation in your head? It's not because God told you to have the conversation in your head because God told you not to have that conversation in your head. No, if you're having that conversation in your head or if you're having it with other people, it's because you're feeding off of it. You're feeding off of it. At least I'm not like that, and it feels good. And notice that all the while you're doing this, you're the center. You're sitting on the throne. You can decide good taste from bad taste, who's up, who's down. You're, you, you can, you're the arbiter of everything, the judge of everything. You're staying at the center. But all of it's pathetic because we're just feeding off this. You can see it explicitly when, when, when there's groups of people who are gossiping about or trash-talking some other group, like cable news, for example. Uh, and, and it just becomes apparent there. Like, yeah, I ask the question, what are they doing here? Now, they're probably doing some problem-solving, but most fundamentally what's going on is they're celebrating the fact that they're a part of the right club. They're a part of the smart people. 
the ones who got it on, the ones who really care about America, the ones who you know, really know the truth. Uh, the, those other folks are blind and, and don't care and, and whatever. You know, and and they're, they're feeding off of this. The whole thing is talking to the choir because it feels good. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. We, we, we judge because we're feeding off of it. And see, with every judgment, we're putting ourselves in the center. With every judgment, we're, at, we're assuming that we have the right and the capacity to judge. With every judgment, we're assuming that we are God. We're standing in the place of God. With every judgment, we're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with every judgment, oh, look, notice, there's always a division. I'm not like that person. That's why you can look down on them. And so with every judgment, there's a division, a separation. We further fragment humanity. Whereas the, the call of love, we're called to live in this love as Christ loved us and, and gave his life for us. We're called to live in this love, and that always is about bringing people together and, and unifying people. They may disagree profoundly, but love always tries to, 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 to resolve conflicts. Love is always about peacemaking. That's our call, but every time we judge, we do the opposite. Because love is the, uh, judgment is the opposite of love. Uh, we, we, for, brings about further fragmentation. And it, it's with what we have going on here in America, and it's happening in different ways around the globe, but it, it's, it, it's an eruption of judgments on steroids. Eruption of judgment on steroids. Um, and it gets more and more intense. The more intense this rhetoric gets around us, folks, uh, it's getting to the point where, where if you dare to love your enemy, uh, you'll be declared a heretic. Uh, if you don't hate our enemies as much as we do, well, then you're not part of us. Hating enemies is now becoming the price of admission to belong to certain groups. Folks, then we just can't belong to those groups because our call is to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Our, amen. At all times and all places with all people, no ifs, ands, or buts. But the good news is I don't know where this is going to go. The future, I believe, is open. It could get better. Could, I think we'll probably get worse before it gets better. And who knows how bad it can get before it ever turns around. Prepare for that. But the good news is that as everything around us is escalating, it feels like the world's out of control, turning and turning the widened gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, everything's being unloosed, chaos is entering upon the world. The good news is that we have available to us a peace that passes understanding. We have available to us a peace that if, if we're willing to, it will rule in our heart. We have within us a peace that can guard our hearts against the toxicity and the animosity and the hatred and the venom that's being tossed around out there. How crucial it is that we anchor ourselves in, in this. It's, it's the peace that comes from being rightly related to God, having God as center. In the conflict of the world, we have God's shalom. Uh, however, the future, however grim the future may look, we can anchor ourselves in this peace that whatever else is at stake, God is not. You know, God cares deeply about the world. He, he suffers with the world. But God, at, at the center of God's being, God's not, God's not up there going, what's going to happen? No, I think God's, at the core of his being, he's, he's got shalom. He's got shalom. Because God knows what we need to know, and that is that, in the end, love wins, and it will all be worth it. It will all be worth it, man. It will, and hang on to that. Hang on to that. As the storm rages, hang on to that. Uh, anchor yourself in that peace. And see, having this peace doesn't mean that you don't care about the world. It doesn't mean that you're above caring about the world or you're apathetic about the things that are going on. It doesn't mean that you don't do things to try to, to help that. No, you do. 
God cares about the world. God does all that God can do to, to, to help the world. Uh, and yet God doesn't freak out. God's got a core piece. So also, to be godly means you care about the world. You get involved in things. Um, and, and, but, but at the core of your being, at the core of your being, there's this shalom that passes all understanding. Uh, in fact, sometimes folks, Emily told us about this, how you can have anxiety. That's just chemical cause. And you can have some anxieties about the things that are going on in this world. But at the core of your being, deep down, there's this okayness. Because you know, it all works out in the end because God is God. Hallelujah. And you're, you're tethered to God. God's the center of your life. Uh, this is what it's all about, folks. Have this peace. You're better. You're, if, not only do you not detach yourself from the world when you're anchored in God's peace, you're better for the world when you're, when you're anchored in God's peace. You'll help the world more if you're doing it out of a center of peace. That peace that's guarding you from getting co-opted into all the toxicity. Because once you're co-opted by the toxicity, you've got nothing new to offer the world. But if you can stay anchored in this peace that passes all understanding, well, now you can come to a situation with a center of calmness, and you make better decisions that way. You're more efficient that way. You're better for the world when you're the best you that you can be, and you'll be the best you that you can be when you are anchored in Jesus Christ as your center. Amen? Amen. To do that, though, to get anchored, to make God center, it means this. It means you've got to die to your own self-centered way of living. That's the deal. If God's the center, then we can't be the center. Uh, the beginning of shalom happens when you accept that you're created to be a complementary center, not your own source center. Uh, it, it means you've got to die to your self-centered way of living. Die to your, it's all about me. Means you've got to die to maybe the uh, way of life that you have that is all predicated on you being the center. What would it look like for you to make God as the center? It means that 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 we we're not Lord of our own life. Uh, we make Jesus Christ Lord. We don't just live to care about our own will. Uh, we we live to carry out God's will. What it means to be have God as center is that you are transitioning out of this in Adam mindset, me only, me first mindset. It's like a Copernican revolution. You accept that you orbit God, God doesn't orbit you. And I, I find that, that when, when, I can really, when I can really get to the point where I, 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 it's like God's love is the tether that holds me. It's a gravitational pull of, of, of God as the center. And, and, and uh, my job is just to let, let myself be held and to hang on, to be trusting God for that provision of life and honoring that prohibition by, by not, not judging and the, the more I can do, do that, I find that I, I experience shalom. When, when my own concerns are swallowed up in God's concerns, that's when yeah, there's this peace, this shalom that passes all understanding. Uh, I'll end with this. You know, in, in the tradition of spiritual disciplines, um, and these, these are things that we all need to be concerned with because uh, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple means you are being disciplined. And that, I don't think, ever stops. It's not like you graduate when you're 50. Okay? You should always be disciplined. I'm 65, but I'm still being disciplined. Uh, and and, and that, that takes intentionality. And in the tradition of, of disciplines, they talk about uh, disciplines of abstinence and disciplines of engagement. The disciplines of abs, abstinence are, they ask this question, and I want us to, to leave here asking this question. What, what, well, let me just ask you this. What is the center of your life, Really? What is the center of your life? Of course, you know you're supposed to say Jesus. Um, but but uh, what, 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 
What occupies your time, your energy? Where are you invested in? What most affects your mood? What gets you up and what can bring you down? Um, now, there's a lot of things that could, could bring you up and bring you down, but the question is, is, is it too important? Is it too central to your life? And so the, the disciplines of abstinence are, 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 are disciplines that help us decentralize things that shouldn't be central. Fast from things, for example, if it's becoming too important to you, you're getting too dependent on it. You fast from things. Uh, maybe activities that, 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 that you used to get involved in for the wrong motive. Um, one of the things I'm doing right now is fasting from my academic reading and academic writing. I, I just feel I'm supposed to let that go uh, because I, I, I think it, was, it played too much of a role in my identity. I, I, and I'm just being, I, I didn't know that when I let go of it. I just let go of it because I felt I was supposed to let go of it. Uh, but now that I've let go of it, it's like I think I had too much of me wrapped up in that. Uh, and, and, and so this is a way of saying, no, no, God's supposed to be my life. Not, not the books I write or the thoughts I think or whatever. No, it, 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 God revealed in Jesus Christ is supposed to be my life. So disciplines of abstinence are, are, are things to, to fast from that are maybe too important to you, and you need to take a break, just to, write, prop, to rightly prioritize things. Sometimes people fast from food, and, and the whole reason of doing that is to make sure that you're Lord of your food, it's not Lord over you. And, and that's true for everything in our life. And then there's the disciplines of engagement, and these are just practices that we can cultivate that help put us in the position where we can experience God's shalom where we rightly prioritize things. Meditation, for example. Meditating on, just, just, just meditating on God as the source of your life. God, if you're just praying that prayer over and over again. God, you, you are the source of my life, the source of my identity, the source of my joy. Uh, it's like Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives within me. That, that's the goal, is to become is animated by the life of God. But through meditation and prayer and other practices, you, you put yourself in a position where you can, well, experience God more as center, and therefore you experience more of God's shalom. A real good book that covers all this, I'd recommend everyone reading this if you haven't already, is Dallas Willard's book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. Excellent book on, on, on just kind of showing us what are some traditional disciplines that we ought to be in, involved in uh, as we're growing in our Christ-likeness. So folks, whether the world is going to get better or whether it's going to get worse, um, I don't know. But be anchored in the one foundation. Jesus said it himself that, that anyone who builds their house on him, he, on, on him is building on a rock. But you build your house on anything else. Get your life from anything else. Make your life about anything else. Make the purpose of meaning of your life about anything else. It's on sinking sand. It can stand for a while, but when the storm comes, it's destroyed, and the storm's coming. I think. Be anchored in Jesus Christ. All right. Um, I'm supposed to give some announcements here. Yes, we have the, the MuseCast on Tuesdays. It's at 4, not 4.30 like I've been announcing the last five times I've announced it. 4 o'clock. Uh, and, and yeah, Dan and, and Sean are on there. I encourage you to watch that. Check out our gathering groups. Connect with other people. Get to know other people. Meet other people. Exchange things. It's, 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 and you go deeper with the sermon by discussing things with people. Uh, and so I encourage you to do that. Uh, we have prayer available online. If you're watching online up front, if you're in the house here, and uh, if you're going to be here next week and have kiddos, let us know so we can make sure we have enough workers for those kiddos. 
Lord, thank you for being our rock and our foundation, our source, our life, our all, our everything, our meaning, our joy, our purpose. Lord God, you are the beginning, middle, of end of what we are about. And we just thank you, Lord God, for giving your life for us to make this a possibility and a reality. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be anchored in God at all times, wherever we go, whatever we do, to be finding our peace in him and living out of a center of love that we might love all of the people the way Christ has loved us and gave his life for us. And if you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love the world. God bless you guys.